All right. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. How are you? Hey, my name is Mike. We're glad you're here. If you're new, we want to welcome you. There's a Connect card on the seat in front of you, on the seat back in front of you. If you want to fill that out, let us know you're here. Uh, If you're a regular, you know what we're doing next. So grab a Bible and uh, let's go to the book of Isaiah. We're going to go to Isaiah, Ezekiel, and then we'll land in Luke. Just to keep things interesting, we'll go to Isaiah chapter 28. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there are Bibles uh, in the seat backs in front of you. And if you don't have one, you're more than welcome to take that one and go with you. We're big fans of the author. And uh, the other thing we want to let you know about is uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'll put all the scriptures up on the screen so you can follow along. We're meandering our way through uh, the book of Luke and we're on to a new section. Um, and, And part of what we do when we gather together is uh, we, we try to get into scriptures that as, you know, they sequentially come in the book of Luke, but, but try to get, get, give a little bit of background. We believe that one of the ways uh, that, that often the Bible gets misunderstood is uh, we just kind of read the New Testament divorced from all the Old Testament stuff that came before it. Because, you know, even in Luke's document, remember he writes to a guy named Theophilus, and he's talking about how uh, all of the great promises of Israel have been fulfilled in this Jesus. And so even for somebody, Theophilus was not Jewish, even though he's writing to somebody not Jewish, he's presupposing all this stuff in the way the account unfolds. And so I want to just give you two pieces of background before we dive into our text in Luke. Luke, uh, Isaiah chapter 28, verse 14. Now, what's happening here is... Uh, the prophets, in, in, in world geopolitics uh, at this time, the, the nation of Assyria has gathered strength and is now sweeping through the ancient world. In response, Israel makes a treaty with the kingdom of Egypt. Now, central to uh, Egyptian religion is the worship of death and the worship of the gods of death. So the pyramids are our testimony to how much death was revered, worshipped, and how much was devoted to understanding what happened during death, after death, and even preparation for death. So Israel has sought refuge in, not God, but in a treaty with Egypt. Now notice what the prophet says about this treaty. Therefore, verse 14, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, you who rule this people in Jerusalem. So this is to the political leadership of Israel. You boast, we have entered into a covenant with death. Now that's not death literally, that's a reference to Egypt. We have entered into a covenant with death. With the realm of the dead, we have made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, this is a reference to Assyria, It cannot touch us. Why? Because we've made a covenant with death. For we have made a lie our refuge. Now this is the prophet now speaking. Hear the word of the Lord. You've made a lie your refuge. This agreement won't protect you. You have made falsehood your hiding place. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, Jerusalem, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure, and what's, what's it say next? Foundation. Foundation. So the contrast is the shelter, the refuge they've made in a lie versus this stone that becomes a foundation provided by God. The one who relies on it, on this cornerstone, this stone, 
will never be stricken with panic. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge, the lie, and water will overflow your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the realm of the dead will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you will be beaten down by it. So the idea is Israel is trusting in its politics, namely the covenant they made with Egypt to protect them from the flood that is coming. God simply says, that's not going to work for you. I am going to lay a cornerstone, a foundation. Anyone who trusts in that will be protected. But this other thing, that's not going to do anything for you. So this image of two different ways of building is used in Isaiah. Go to Ezekiel and you see a very similar thing. Now, in Ezekiel, the prophet, Ezekiel uh, chapter 13, in Ezekiel, the prophet is condemning other false prophets who are saying we can't be touched. They are prophesying peace over Israel. They're saying to Israel, listen, we got nothing to worry about, guys, when in fact there is much to worry about. All right, And so the image the prophet uses is of building a flimsy wall and covering it with whitewash. Now, the idea of whitewash is that you're covering up all of the cracks in the wall. You're making the wall look stronger than it actually is. And so notice how the prophet condemns this. Ezekiel chapter 13, we'll start in verse 10. Because they, and these are false prophets, lead my people astray, saying, Peace! When there is no peace. And because when a flimsy wall is built, they cover it with whitewash. Therefore, tell those who cover it with whitewash that it is going to fall. Rain will come in torrents, and I will send hailstones hurling down, and violent winds will burst forth. When the wall collapses, will people not ask you, false prophets, where's the whitewash you covered it with? Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, In my wrath I will unleash a violent wind, and in my anger hailstones and torrents of rain will fall with destructive fury. I will tear down the wall you have covered with whitewash. So, in Isaiah, the prophet is condemning leadership that is trusting in an alliance with Egypt instead of trusting in the Lord. And in Ezekiel, the prophet is condemning false prophets who are saying, hey, we're good, when they're not good. That's like taking a flimsy wall and covering it with whitewash to make it look sturdier than it is. Either way, when a storm hits, it'll be exposed. Now, with that in mind, go to Luke chapter 6. So, for those of you that know what's coming, you see already the parallels. Luke chapter 6. See, we believe that when Jesus was speaking to Jewish people, even though many of them were peasants, they were called people of the land, that there was a basic, they were hearing Torah spoken and taught all the time. And for a lot of people, even in the Galilee, there's some evidence that as children, you would have been instructed in the first five books of the law. You would have memorized portions of the Old Testament. You'd be thoroughly familiar with images like this. And so when Jesus is marching around speaking in parables, these aren't just dropping into history in a vacuum. And and so part of what we have to work to do always is to hear them, well, as some of the original audience would have heard them. So, Luke chapter 6, we've been talking about judgment, the good kind, discernment, the bad kind, condemnation. Luke chapter 6, what's that, bud? 
Yeah, we're going to actually start in, uh, we're going to start in 42. You can't guess. No guessing. See, that's why we, we did Isaiah first, because I don't want you just to think and you can go straight to Luke. Verse 42. Now remember this from last week and the week before. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You, and then what's the word? Hypocrite. Now, you, if you've been in church, you know this. Hypocrite was a neutral word until Jesus got a hold of it. Hypocrite just, it was an actor. It was a stage word in Greek drama. And Jesus grew up right near Sepphoris. Sepphoris was rebuilt uh, by the Herodian magistrate and was very Greek. Had a big old theater. So we think perhaps that's where Jesus kind of got the image. But a hypocrite just meant one who wears a mask. It was a stage actor, and how you would do stage acting in Greek drama is that you, would, you wouldn't use your natural face. You would wear a happy mask if your character was happy. You would wear a sad mask if your character was sad. You'd wear an angry mask if your character was angry. So there was always a distinction between your outward face and your true one. Now Jesus gets a hold of this and starts applying it <laughs> in ways that weren't related to Greek drama. And so he talks about you hypocrites. Now, who are the hypocrites he's referring to? It's the people with two-by-fours in their own eyes who are trying to lead and correct people with specks of dust in their own, right? Now, to understand, see, Jesus isn't just coming up. He's not just riffing. He's not just saying, yeah, yeah, I'm going to talk about this, and then I'm going to talk about this. I think what's happening, the way Luke records these sermons, is that there are bits and pieces of something he'll say that will lead him now to comment So I think he's starting to talk about hypocrisy now when he says the following. Verse 43, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. So you could have two trees that are apple trees that look exactly alike. And you can't tell any difference between them until they produce fruit, correct? And the healthy one will produce healthy fruit, And the not healthy one will produce not healthy fruit, is the idea. The fruit just reveals what's in its inner nature, even though the outward, they may look the same. He says, people do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. And then he takes this agricultural image and applies it to human beings. A good man stores good things, or excuse me, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. Remember, heart doesn't mean emotion. Heart means the center of your being in Jewish thought. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. And then Jesus quotes a proverb, for out, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Now, there is a lot of discussion over how this section fits with what Jesus was talking about in terms of judgment. Well, I think the key to understanding is this word hypocrite. Because what he's saying is, hey, you hypocrites, deal with the two-by-four in your own eye before you deal with the speck. But what's true of hypocrites? Well, when you look at somebody who's not a hypocrite and somebody who is a hypocrite, they'll look the same outwardly, right? Until you see the, what? Fruit. In the same way, two trees, until they produce fruit, you don't know, people will show whether or not they're full of kingdom things or whether or not they're not, right? 
And he takes a proverb about out of the heart the mouth speaks and says, here's one example of how that works. Apple trees do not produce bananas. Banana trees do not produce apples. You cannot turn a banana tree into an apple tree by wrapping bananas around the apple tree, right? Your inner essence will always be revealed in the fruit you bear. Hypocrites look the same as authentic disciples. So you must examine the fruit produced by their lives. Now, the specific, are you tracking with me so far? Eight o'clock? So the specific example he ends with is out of the mouth comes what's in the heart. Except, notice what he says next. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? So do you see what he's saying? Hypocrites. People will show themselves, though, by their fruit. And he gives the example of speech. Out of speech reveals the heart. And then he immediately goes into, yeah, but there are people that call me Lord, but don't do what I say. So here's an example of how speech is being used to cover the heart and not reveal it. Are you tracking on the flow of thought here? So I think Jesus just isn't like doing pithy stuff. I think he's, he's digging in to the nitty-gritty about what it means to love your enemies, what it means to bless those that persecute you. He's going to say, listen, he's surrounded by crowds at this point in his ministry. People are acclaiming him as a great miracle worker. People are amazed at the authority of his teaching. People are running to him for healing. And they acclaim him, Lord. We don't think at this point in his ministry, Lord means, hey, you're the second person of the Trinity. But Lord's is a term, nevertheless, of deep respect. And the fact that it's repeated, Lord, Lord, profound respect. Jesus is simply saying, you hypocrites, take, take the two by four out of your own eye, Israel, before you deal with specks in other people. But man, for some of us, it's hard to tell who the hypocrites are and aren't, right? And so a tree will always reveal itself by its fruit. Human beings work the same way, especially what comes out of their mouth. But some of you are calling me Lord, but the fruit of your life says I'm not. Because what is Lord if not a title of allegiance, respect, and submission? So to call me Lord, Lord, and to not do what I say is to deny that I'm Lord. So now we have hypocrisy, correct? With your words, you're calling me Lord. With your life, you're saying I am not. So then Jesus tells the following parable. Verse 47. As for everyone who, in their three verbs, who comes to me, hears my words, and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. Now, this is where we click back into Ezekiel and Isaiah. Right here. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. Now, Luke is speaking to Mediterranean people. Jesus told this story to Palestinian people originally. So the idea is it would take a bit of work to dig down into the rock. You'd be tempted to take shortcuts. It would would be very, very easy to just kind of rest the house on the stone on which the, the house would be laid. It was just right there. It was as accessible. You didn't have to dig deep for it. You didn't have to do the hard work. The people that come to me, hear me, and do what I say are like people who build a house and who keep digging deep, building it on a foundation, 
laying the foundation on rock. When the flood came, the torrent struck that house, but could not shake it. Now, do you see the image straight from Isaiah and Ezekiel? Right? So, so, yeah, what's the flood coming? Well, the flood isn't just having a bad day. The flood's not just not finding a parking space. You know, this is, this is the flood of judgment. And judgment can be this life or next life, or both. And so, two houses look the same until the storms come, right? Two trees look the same until you see their fruit. Two people look the same to see their heart. So, Jesus... But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck the house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. And the implication is they were destroyed along with the house. Now do you see the genius of what Jesus is doing here? At the height of his popularity, he's offering teaching about loving your enemies. Now think about that. Suppose the Taliban ruled America. Suppose we were invaded by the Taliban, all right, or ISIS. Let's, let's, let's play with ISIS for a second. Suppose ISIS invaded America and were ruling us. They were beheading Christians left and right, your children, your children's children. And then a prophet shows up in the middle of Iowa and this prophet starts marching around saying, Hey, when someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. When someone commands you to carry their armor for a mile, carry it for two. When someone commands you to lend, lend without expecting any return. Love your enemies and do good to those who are beheading you. How how popular is that going to be? This is exactly what Jesus is doing in Roman-occupied Israel. When good Jews have been, are being, and will be crucified in the most gruesome manner imaginable. And so Jesus stands up and says, love your enemies. Now, the temptation at that point is to say, Jesus, I love you for your miracles. Jesus, I love you for the announcement of God's kingdom arriving on earth. I love you because you're doing all this great stuff. But we will not say yes to the kingdom agenda that you're bringing. We still believe the best way to be Israel is to death to the Romans. See, we hear this as only an individual summons. Man, this is national too. This is Jesus saying to the nation, unless you repent, judgment's coming upon the nation. And it came. Right? Forty years after this, the temple will be destroyed. And 2,000 years later, we're still waiting for its rebuilding. So as much as it's tempting just to rush into, man, yeah, I hate the hypocrites in the church too, there's a pause first when you go, boy, Jesus, it's really easy to love your enemies when all your enemies do is say bad things about you. 
But the kind of enemies that Jesus was talking about loving were exactly the enemies that were going to crucify him. So when we talk about being hearers and not doers, that's when it gets really tempting, right? So Jesus comes in the middle of all this acclaim. Lord, Lord! Why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? I'll tell you what that's like. Remember those storms that were promised in the Old Testament when you build on a foundation that wasn't Solid? Well, that's like that. Except now Jesus is saying that it's my words that are the foundation. So even implicit in this is some majorly messianic stuff. Now, does this have relevance for us today, you think? Absolutely. Why? Well, because if we're not careful, what so often passes is the gospel in the American church is really just magical Jesus saying formula that goes a lot like calling Jesus Lord and then having nothing to do with him, right? Go to Romans chapter 10. So let's, for instance, look at Romans chapter 10. This is a passage I have used that we use to help people come to Jesus, right? And I want to hold it in tension with what Jesus just said here. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be... For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Now, is this verse true? Utterly. But it's interesting, though, to read that after Jesus' words. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Because what I thought the gospel was, when my Sunday school teacher explained it to me, was simply this. Agree in your head and say with your lips. Pray this prayer, and you will go to heaven when you die. And this was the verse that was quoted. Now, maybe, but I think there's a deeper understanding of what Paul's saying here that better jives with what Jesus is saying than that version. Because the word believe, in American language, the word believe just means up here, right? Yeah, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Yeah! Yeah! You believe he rose from the dead? Sure. You, have you accepted him in your heart? Absolutely. Now, according to Jesus, if all of that is true of you and yet there is no fruit, have you believed? You have not. Now this... Do we believe that salvation is a gift by grace? Absolutely. Absolutely. No question. Never mistake it. We don't obey Jesus to earn His favor. We don't obey Jesus to be a part of His family. We obey because we've already got those things. The point we want to make is simply this. This is what Paul is saying, even though the word believe in English doesn't sound like much. Paul is simply saying this. Belief will always produce fruit. 
I think it was Luther that said, we're saved by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. So, dumb example. The only kind I have, evidently. I did a wedding. I don't do weddings because I have this thing on weekends that I do. Uh, And so I don't normally, I used to do a ton of them. I don't really do many weddings. Family friend on a Thursday night in Laguna Beach. Okay, let's do a wedding. I was a little rusty. I'm not going to lie. And, and this couple, think about what a wedding is. Is a wedding a contract? Hmm? What's a contract? Two parties that each have something to offer the other, and the contract is an agreement based upon mutual bene- benefit that will stay in force for as long as it's mutually beneficial, correct? Well, that's how Americans look at it. Biblically, what's a marriage? A covenant. Now, the word believe here, believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, that's covenant language. Now, what's the difference between a covenant and a contract? Oh, well, there's a world of difference. Yes, it is absolutely relational in nature. The word believe is a relationship word. Faith is a relationship word. It's not just some legal transaction that takes place up here. It's the pledge of life. Isn't that what a marriage is at its best? And isn't this why Jesus and God use it all throughout the scriptures as the example of what he's interested in with us? Right? Believing is a marital word. So I've got these two people. They come as single people. They have their own lives, they live their own ways, they they have ways of living and speaking and being that were totally congruent with singleness. Now they come, and in front of God and witnesses, they pledge their lives, their real lives, that they will now leave that place having a new identity, having a new purpose, living and speaking and acting in ways that are congruent now with their new identity as a married couple. It's not that they live as a married couple in order to become one. They're married, so they now live what's already true. We've talked about this, correct? But what is that moment when they say, for better and worse, in sickness and in health, for richer and poorer, till death do us part, forsaking all others? That's belief. That is the pledge of life. Confessing Jesus only matters if it's backed up with the life behind the confession. And what God isn't interested in any more than my wife is interested in, well, she is interested in perfection, but, but that's not going to happen. Jesus isn't interested in perfectness. He's interested in fidelity. And so Jesus back then was simply saying, your pledge of fidelity, calling me Lord, if not backed up with a life in which I am indeed Lord, Well, that's deception. You're deceiving yourself. And Jesus says this blatantly in Matthew. Do you remember Matthew chapter 7? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not know you? Did we not serve you? Did we not do miracles in your name? And I will say, I never, what? Relational word. Covenant word. See, Jesus, following Jesus, isn't just a contract where I give him my sin, he gives me his righteousness, I get a ticket to heaven. Faith is believing that he keeps his end of the covenant and that I will do my best to keep mine. And the best part of the thing is that the covenant isn't between two equals. 
It's between a greater and a much, much lesser. So my faith isn't in my fidelity, it's in his. But I pledge that I will now live as if all of this were now true. Because it turns out to be. Are you with me so far in this? And so brothers and sisters, what, what I bought into early in my Christian life was the magical formula Jesus gospel. All I have to say are words. Now, is Jesus so great that he may save us with that? Sure, I make no judgment. I just simply wish to point out the deep, authoritative, scriptural teaching that says genuine faith will always show itself in fruit. How can you be filled with the Spirit of the living God and have that not make a difference? I mean, if these, if this, if these two people who I married... If their life as a married couple looks exactly like their life as a non-married couple, they sleep with other people, let's say, they, they never spend any time together, they're dating other people, are they married? No, it doesn't matter what the ceremony said. The ceremony is only as good as the life behind it. That's why baptism doesn't save you, it's only as good as the life behind it. And we're not saying, brothers and sisters, please hear me, this is a gift, all we got to say is Yes. But that yes, if it's an authentic yes, means that over the course of God's filling us, shaping us, molding us, moving us, that there should be some degree of difference from what life was like before and what life is like now. I play basketball. Play, I use colloquially. So on Wednesdays, we have a gym. And, and so there's just a great crew of guys. Most of these guys, not from our church community, so it's just, it's just great to play. Suppose I sent an email. I think I've told this story before. Suppose I sent an email to these guys that said, guys, you'll never believe what happened this week. I had a life-changing encounter with the spirit of LeBron James. <laughs> I accepted him as my basketball savior, his spirit now dwells in me. The same spirit that animates LeBron James dwells in me. And, and suppose then, following Wednesday, I show up and I do my normal miss most shots and just kind of run from foul line to foul line, trying to keep up with everybody. What, are they, what, what judgment do they render about my life-changing encounter with the spirit of LeBron James? Yeah, you're deluded. Right, So there, there's always the temptation when we're walking around saying we've had this life-changing encounter with the Spirit of God. For people then to watch, has that Spirit made any difference? The fact that you now are co-heirs with Christ, does that make any difference? The fact that you're forgiven for everything, does that make any difference? And so what we're not trying to say this morning, I want to be really, really clear. None of this is an attempt to earn God's favor. We can't. None of it is an attempt to show ourselves of deserving of God's favor. We can't. This is fully grace. But for me, the yes to grace was just a, oh yeah, here's fire insurance. Fantastic. That's not a yes to grace. That's me using a yes to grace for my own ends. That kind of yes doesn't produce fruit. 
So I want you to think of this more in marital terms. For those of you that have been married, are married, maybe will be, what you're saying when you're standing in front of a bunch of people isn't, I intellectually believe that we're going to be married. You're not looking at each other saying, you know, I'm going to say I'm married, but I'm not going to do anything about that. What are you saying? I pledge my imperfect, fallen, frail life. And I receive your pledge. And then we walk together. And that walking will change you. Right? So, if you are not a follower of Jesus, may I beg you, implore you, beseech you, to say yes to him, not as a way to escape the fiery furnace, but as a way of pledging life and allegiance to him. And for those of us that are following Jesus, the question I was pounded with all day yesterday is, okay, Mike, what's the fruit of your life? So can I just ask you the questions I was being asked yesterday? For those of you that are followers for Jesus, can you just close your eyes? Don't, don't move. Don't do anything. Just close your eyes. Are you making disciples? Yes. Is your life being poured out? Are you a witness to the God revealed in Jesus? Is there more joy? Is there more peace? Is there more patience? Is there more love? Is there more faithfulness? Is there more gentleness? Is there more kindness? the more mercy, compassion? Is there more hunger and thirsting for righteousness? Is there more generosity? Is there more forgiveness? Is there more love of enemy? Is there more love of neighbor? Is there more renewing of the mind? Is there less anger? Less jealousy? Less judgment? Less name calling? Less greed? Less lust. Less pride. I stand indicted. I am the worst sinner in this room. The farther and closer I get to Jesus, the more I'm aware of my own darkness. Men and women, we simply don't want to be people that ride on a confession of decades ago. We pledge our lives again today.
and tomorrow and the next day. And this isn't about salvation as much as it is about freedom and being formed and shaped into the image of Jesus. And so, Father, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us, the people who bear your name, that we might not rest or settle for the mere verbal profession, but that you would bring conviction, that you would bring light where there is darkness, you would bring truth where there are lies. And if any one of us is deceiving ourselves into thinking that we know you and you know us, when in actuality there's just a verbal agreement and a mental belief, Father, would you reveal yourself with such power and glory to us that we would not help but repent in view of your holiness and grandeur. Father, I pray that we would be a community that just radically lays down and quit seeking to protect, but instead lives like we have nothing to lose. And so we pray that your kindness would lead us to repentance this morning. Father, we agree that we need you. We agree that there's nothing we can do to earn your favor, your glory. Nothing we can do, Father, to merit your attention or your grace. And so, Father, we abandon our attempts. We cast ourselves upon your great mercy and say yes again to the gospel of Jesus that you came into the world to save sinners, which I am the worst. And may that yes, Father, result in the filling of your Holy Spirit in us. And may we produce fruit. The fruit of a life being transformed, the fruit of a life dedicated to your purposes, the fruit of a life following you. So have mercy on us, Jesus, we pray. Amen.